Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke as we are early in our exposition of this wonderful Gospel. Every word of Scripture is inspired and true and trustworthy. But we know the center of all Scripture is Christ. And what a blessing it is that we can, every day if we desire, come to the Gospels and behold the life and truth and ministry of our Savior. And it is a joy for us to be able to take our services over these next many months to work through Luke's Gospel. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we come before you now hungry for your truth thirsty for the fountain, the spring of life that is Christ. And so we, as we come to your table, Lord, we ask simply that you fill your children. Fill us with your word, your spirit. Let us feast on the excellencies of all that you are and all that you have secured for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. You know, the birth of a child is always a joyous occasion among the people of God. 
As the people of God, we know that he is the one who opens the womb. He is the one who forms each and every image bearer in secret. And he is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And yet as we come to our text this morning, we rejoice in even more significant ways because what we are exploring here is a miraculous birth in which God was preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. Just as Gabriel foretold, Elizabeth was blessed by God to go from being barren and scorned to being the mother of John, the one who would precede Christ in the spirit of Elijah. Now, historically, we want to understand that when a Jewish couple had a son, eight days after his birth, all of the family and close friends would gather together, together to celebrate as the father named him and as he was circumcised. This circumcision was a sign of Israel's fidelity to their covenant with God. We see in the first two verses of our text that that's exactly what's going on in Zechariah's household. Zechariah and Elizabeth's family and neighbors, they were there. They were all rejoicing with them at John's birth. After all, Elizabeth had been barren for, for decades. She was in her latter years, and yet God blessed her with a child and blessed them with a son. And so they were all rejoicing with them, acknowledging together that it is God who had poured out his mercy on this couple. On the eighth day, they were gathered around in support. And since it was well known that Zechariah was mute ever since the time of his service in the temple, they all simply assumed that the boy would be named after Zechariah. Zechariah Jr. That's going to be his name. They all assumed. But in verse 60, we see that Elizabeth spoke up and said that he was to be named John. Obviously, Zechariah had found a way to communicate to Elizabeth what Gabriel had told him. John was the name given by the Lord for this child. Gabriel, when he first appeared to Zechariah, said, you shall call his name John. That was back in verse 13. Now, as the family and friends were all gathered around, they were perplexed by this. This was strange. Surely that's not what you want to name this child. That's not a family name. That can't be what Zechariah would want to name him. And so they brushed off Elizabeth and they decided to go to Zechariah himself and they made motions to him to, to try to see what he wanted to name the boy. Well, after getting hold of his writing tablet, Zechariah wrote, his name is John. And then it says, they all wondered. Literally, the word there means that they marveled. They they were astonished. And in that marvelous moment, God did another miracle. In, at that instant, when Zechariah exercised faith and obedience in naming his son, God lifted his punishment. He restored his ability to speak and to hear, and he anointed him with his Holy Spirit to give a word of prophecy. And that's exactly what happened. Zechariah's tongue was loosed, and all this praise and prophecy came pouring out. And, and before I go any further, I do want us to note something very important here. How would you feel if God, if you knew God had taken away your ability to speak and your ability to hear as a punishment for unbelief? How would that make you feel? I know that if it were us, we would probably all struggle with that, right? 
I'm sure at some level, maybe many levels, Zechariah did. Being a deaf mute for over nine months could have had a very, very bad effect on him. But remember, brothers and sisters, we always need to see suffering through the lens of our Savior. As human beings, suffering usually has one of two effects on us. It either drives us nearer to God in faith or farther from God in bitterness. Obviously, it had the former effect on Zechariah. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Luke, said, Zechariah shows us that his nine months of dumbness had not been inflicted on him in vain. He is no longer faithless, but believing. Zechariah now believes every word that Gabriel told him, and he obeys every word of that message. Let us take heed that affliction does us good as it did to Zechariah. The sorrow that humbles us and drives us closer to God is a blessing and a positive gain. No case is more hopeless than that of the person who in times of affliction turns his back on God. Let us remember even that small part of Zechariah's example in this text, brothers and sisters, to rejoice even in our divinely appointed suffering. That brings us to what is known as the Benedictus, as, is, as it's called in church history. It's Zechariah's prophetic song. And in verses 68 through 79, we basically have a record of what Zechariah said when verse 64 said he spoke and, and blessing God. And so we want to explore Zechariah's prophetic words under four points this morning. We see in the text God's plan for our redemption, God's purpose for our redemption, God's profit for our salvation, and God's peace in the light of Christ. And so let's talk about first God's plan for our redemption. God's plan for our redemption. Zechariah starts in verse 68 by saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. As Zechariah rejoices in the birth of his son, he most definitely sees the larger picture of redemption unfolding before him. Keep in mind that Mary, newly pregnant with Jesus, had been staying with he and his wife in their home for the last three months. So Zechariah knows personally from what Gabriel told him and what has been confirmed through Mary and Elizabeth that his son John will be the forerunner of Mary's child. So as his tongue is now loosed, the joy of the Messiah's coming is what fills his heart. He begins his prophecy by breaking forth in praise for God's promised deliverance. He gives praise to God for visiting them and bringing redemption to his people. Now, how has God done this? Well, by raising up a horn of salvation in the house of David. The house of David, of course, is significant because we know that the promised Messiah would come through David's line. And the horn is a common Old Testament metaphor for power because of the strength of the horned animals in the Near East. And so Zechariah is acknowledging that the power of salvation resides in this coming Messiah and that his coming, his coming to save us is a fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament records for us the words of the prophets of old who predicted by the inspiration of God's spirit that Christ would be God incarnate come to save his people. This is spoken of in Isaiah 9. It's a very familiar passage to us, right? Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, 
And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, As we see in verse 71, this promise was understood in the time of Zechariah as a promise of political and national deliverance. The Jews believed that God would save them literally from the hands of their earthly enemies and protect them literally from those in their presence who hated them. But the Jews failed to understand that God would accomplish this deliverance on a scale far greater than earthly nations and governments. In the context of the greater biblical narrative, the history of redemption, we know that man's own indwelling sin is our greatest enemy, right? And that is exactly the enemy that Jesus Christ came to save us from. What Zechariah prophesied about has been realized, but in a far greater sense than he could humanly anticipate. Christ has redeemed us, not merely from earthly slave masters and oppressors. Christ has redeemed us from our spiritual slavery to sin. Christ has redeemed us from the dominion of Satan over our lives. And that's what the whole Bible is about. When we begin reading in Genesis 1 and we go all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, it is a story of God's love and glory being displayed in the redemption of his people out of their sinfulness. It's about God visiting his people to accomplish our redemption. You know, think about who you would consider probably the, the most important person in this earthly existence to visit you. You know, maybe, maybe it's a beloved family member that you just long for their visit. Maybe, you know, you, you think it would be amazing if you could host someone who's maybe a favorite author or, or a favorite preacher or may, maybe someone who's had just a, an incredible impact on your spiritual life and your development. Think how significantly you would prepare yourself for that visit. And then step back and marvel at the wonder of God himself visiting a sinful people who deserve only his wrath and judgment, and yet he visits to bring them out of darkness, out of the wretchedness of their sin and depravity, into his loving embrace. Brothers and sisters, the enemy is right here. And this is what Christ saves us from. He is our salvation. As it says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you are in the sound of my voice this morning, I plead with you to examine yourself, to see that you have trusted in Christ. Even our young people, even our children, you have the privilege of being in a place where your, your parents, your grandparents bring you on a regular basis. I pray every week for you, for your salvation. I pray that even as you listen to Pastor Sean this morning, you would ask yourselves, have I believed on Jesus Christ alone for salvation? For my precious ones, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Jesus Christ has done everything, literally everything, Necessary to give you right standing before a holy God. It's nothing you can attain for yourself, not even on your best day. 
Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. He has died on the cross. He has risen from the grave. And all who call upon his name shall be saved. Call upon his name this day in faith. Precious child. Know the grace and salvation that he brings. That is God's plan for our redemption. Secondly, we see God's purpose for our worship. God's purpose for our worship. Look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Here, Zechariah is looking backwards to Israel's history, even as he looks forward to God's deliverance through his coming son. God had promised mercy to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to the 12 tribes of Israel. He made a covenant, an oath with Abraham to make him a mighty nation and through him to bless all the nations of the earth. And now the promise of that covenant was about to come true. God was fulfilling his promises. And Zechariah was rejoicing in God's faithfulness. God would deliver them from their enemies and bring them to serve and worship in righteousness. Now, what is in the background here, the, the biblical archetype of God's deliverance is what takes place in the Old Testament book of Exodus. In Exodus seven sixteen, God told Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go so that they may worship me. God then rescued his people out of their bondage in Egypt with great plagues. He brought his people safely through the Red Sea by parting the waters for them. And then he crushed the most powerful army on earth to keep them from following. He then led the Israelites to his holy mountain, Mount Sinai, to purify them for himself and to permanently and formally establish them in his law as his chosen people. He delivered them and consecrated them all so that they would be free to worship. You know, brothers and sisters, God continues this miraculous work of deliverance even today through Christ. You talk about our redemption in my previous point. Why does God redeem us? Why does he set us free from our slavery to sin and death? So, as it says here, so that we might serve him without fear and holy and without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Christ's life. His perfect sacrifice, his glorious resurrection is the means of our deliverance. It is his blood that makes us holy and righteous before him all of our days. And because of what Jesus has done, there is nothing that can separate the true believer from the love of our God. And so as believers, we are reborn, we are set free for all time so that we may draw near to him, love him and worship him. You remember this was one of the major statements of John Piper's book, Let the Nation Be Glad, when it came out so many years ago. Evangelism and missions exist because worship does not. One day evangelism and missions won't exist anymore, but worship will literally go on forever. And, and that is how principally we are to understand ourselves and our identity, who we are in 
Christ, as those who are one with him, as those who have been brought into perfect union with the blessed Son of God, as those who have been made co-heirs with Christ, we have the privilege of having that same heart that Jesus had. Jesus was always ready on his lips to give glory to his Father above, to speak of his Father's will, to do of his Father's bidding. And brothers and sisters, that is not our burden. That is our joy in Christ as well. Our joy. To go back to what John Piper said, worship is what we were created for. This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of his glory. And he created us so that we would see this glory and reflect it by knowing it and loving it with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is our joy, brothers and sisters. And I know sometimes, if you're like me, I I struggle too. I know sometimes we don't feel like worshiping, do we? Sometimes we get up and we come on Sunday mornings just because we know that's what we're supposed to do. Maybe we have a crisis going on in our lives that we feel is crushing us or that we see no end to. Maybe we're carrying secret burdens. Maybe we're struggling with secret sins and we feel so far from God. We, we almost imagine God being so utterly disappointed in us that he wants nothing to do with us. There are any number of things, brothers and sisters, that can cause a cloud to form that that clouds our vision and our understanding of God. But I would remind you, oh, precious child, that if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, everything that you think has become a wall between you and the Lord has been removed by the work and person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Every way that you fall short that you fail to desire right things, every way that you slip into apathy, every way that you go back and return to that besetting sin, I want you to understand all of that is covered by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who obeyed perfectly for you in your stead. And the Bible says that even now, even in your worst, darkest moments, Christ is ever interceding for you before the throne of the Father above. That means every moment in eternity, Christ is before the Father, continually pleading His atoning work on your behalf so that there does not need to be this distance between you and Him. Indeed, the distance that exists between you and the Lord is only imagined. You have a Savior even now who holds you. Just turn and face him again in repentance and know the comfort of his embrace. And then, Christian, look at at yourself, your, your life, your priorities, your personal needs, your future. Understand that everything that is laid out before you is held also in the hands of your Savior. God is directing all of your life to bring you nearer into him. And it is Christ who even this moment, as you have been made one with him, it is he that beckons you to enjoy him, to love him, to serve him, to revel in his grace and love for all eternity. Your your purpose in this life is not found in the things of this world. We are co-heirs with Christ. The riches of eternity are ours. And we are to view everything 
that lies before us here in the light, in the lens of that reality. Your job is your mission field. Your children are gifts and treasures given to you to help you understand God's love for you as your father. Your marriage is to teach you how close you're meant to be to Christ. Your money and your things are just resources to use according to his priorities. They are not idols to be attained at the expense of your soul. Christ has gone before us in these things where we lack the work and the labor and the person of Christ fill up what is lacking. And it's he who continually frees us to set our gaze on things above, to free us from earthly perspectives so that we, brothers and sisters, might find our greatest joy and satisfaction in him. Indeed, when we come here on Sunday morning, what we do here is just a culmination, a privilege to gather with our brothers and sisters in a foretaste of heaven to sing praise and glory and honor to Christ our King. This is who we are. That takes me to my third point, God's profit for our salvation. In verse 76, Zechariah shifts to focus on the ministry of his own son. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And so Zechariah is shifting here to his own son, John, who will be the one preparing the way for the Messiah. Again, this is what Gabriel had told him all the way back in his encounter with the angel in verse 17, that John would go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is why John would be called the, the prophet of the Most High. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist would be uh, the one who would bridge the period of silence between uh, uh, the Old Testament and the New. John the Baptist would literally be the last of the line of the Old Testament prophets at simultaneously also being the herald introducing the new covenant ministry of Christ himself. Through his preaching in the wilderness, John would give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. John's ministry would be a gospel ministry because he would point people to Jesus. I want you to flip forward in your Bible with me. Flip forward to Luke 3. Most of you just turn a page. Look with me at Luke 3, verses 15 through 18. Just a page over. Luke 3, 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. You see that? John the Baptist had the privilege of being that last in the line of Old Testament prophets who also got to preach the good news to the people. And there would come a point very shortly after this text when he would be able to say, there, there he is. <coughs> Excuse me. John was imparting 
the knowledge of salvation to the people of God. And the ministry of John and the ministry of Christ which followed came to Israel because of, look at verse 78 in our text, because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Brothers and sisters, even as even as you pick up your own Bibles and read, do you understand that that word given to you to read is a tender mercy of God, a revelation to nourish your spirit? <clears throat> when you come to church and when you sit under a sermon and when you hear the Bible rightly divided and proclaimed, not just by me, but any pastor or teacher, do you understand that it is a mercy of God revealing himself to you to draw you nearer to his own heart? God had compassion, mercy upon sinful men, and thus he was sending John as the herald and Christ as God incarnate to accomplish his perfect purpose of redemption. And so what we see exemplified in John remains the role of all Christian preaching. The gospel is the greatest news ever to bless the ears of sinful men. And we see incredible evidence of God's mercy in how he calls and raises up preachers who will go bring this news to every corner of creation. It is indeed God's mercy to reveal his son. Romans 10, 13 and following, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How glorious, brothers and sisters, is the ministry of the gospel. Once again, this is, this is such a good reminder and even a corrective for us. I know, like you, sometimes we pick up God's word and we struggle with it just being a sense of duty, not delight. Sometimes you find it hard to come and listen just to someone stand in front of you and talk for a half hour or 45 minutes. But you know what? That's because there's a spiritual battle going on in you. Your flesh doesn't want to hear the word. Your flesh wants you to stop your ears and run away. Your flesh wants you to go and surf your Facebook feed, not read God's word. Your flesh doesn't want you to be attentive to the word of God. It is given before you. Your flesh, the world, the devil, all of them want to cut us off from the fountain of God's mercy that comes through the preaching of our Savior, the truth of our Savior. The very same forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil would also have us cut off our co-workers and our classmates and our neighbors from them hearing the word through us. It makes us as Christians think that the gospel is an intrusion into other people's lives rather than a mercy that we are carrying to a world in need. But oh, precious child, even when we fail and struggle in these ways, it is Christ who sustains us and keeps us to the othermost, is it not? Christ is faithful. Christ is true. Christ is bold. Christ is gentle and humble in heart. Christ is everything for us so that as he is in us, as we are one with him, we might know his grace and forgiveness and strength to go and be and do the same. God's prophet for our salvation is 
ultimately Christ Himself. And we are privileged to carry that good news to you. That takes me to my fourth and final point. God's peace in the light of Christ. God's peace in the light of Christ. Again, go back to verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. As we continue with verse 78, that second phrase is very interesting. It refers to the sunrise here. The Greek term for sunrise is very unique. It's rendered as day spring in the King James Version, as day in the RSV, as rising sun in the NIV, and as sunrise with a capital S in both the New American Standard and sunrise here in the ESV. What is interesting is that this term was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to translate the Hebrew word for sprout or branch, specifically referring to the promised heir of David. Taking that grammar and contextual, those contextual factors into consideration, we come to understand here that the sunrise is the life-giving Messiah. It is Jesus rising with the warmth of God's salvation over a dark and wicked land. Christ from on high has visited us to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And this verse here is really a, a quote based loosely on several different texts from Isaiah. Again, Isaiah 9. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with content, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the Lord and I have called you righteous. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And then there's even Isaiah 60, which I read earlier in our order of service, talking about how we are to arise, for our light has come, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Brothers and sisters, all that is of this world and of our flesh is sin, darkness, and death. That is all of mankind apart from Christ. But Christ has come like the splendor of the dawn upon this dark world to illumine us, to dispel the darkness, to guide us into the way of peace. Just, just to pull an expression from, from personal experience, a, a, an illustration from personal experience, I, I, I enjoy hunting. And I enjoy hunting, it, it, unfortunately deer hunting. I'm a Floridian. I do not like the cold. But unfortunately deer hunting season is always in the darkest part of winter. And it's freezing. But one of the joys is sitting there in the woods in the dark of the morning. And it's cold. That's not the joyful part. It's cold. And it seems like right before the sunrise is when it gets coldest. And I'm shaking and I'm shivering. But then there's that moment when the sunlight pierces the horizon. And that first beam of sunlight falls on you and you begin to feel its, its warmth. Its brightness and its splendor just lights you up. And that warmth washes over you and it's, it's like the tender embrace of God. 
coming to you through the light. Brothers and sisters, that's Christ. Christ is that glorious sunrise, if you will. Spell it S-O-N-R-I-S-E, if you will, in your notes. Christ is that sunrise. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Life in the light of Christ is, is wholly different than the life we know in this world. Everything here is temporal. It's fading away. It's destined to perish. It's marked by strife. But Christ himself is the treasure of eternity bestowed upon us by the mercy and grace of a holy God, granting us peace and reconciliation and comfort and joy. Now for, for some of us, some of us, that's too hard to believe. Some of us think that we have failed so many times that our lives are so messed up that though Jesus must love us, he must also be disappointed in us. That Jesus also must be tired of us. We believe that Jesus is holding on to us, but we kind of picture him holding on to us way out here, away from himself, right? That's not the truth. Dear child of God, I want to recommend a book to you. I've just recently gotten it. I'm about halfway through it, but this is an excellent work. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortman. It's based upon the writing of the Puritans. And it's one of the, one of the best things I've picked up in the past couple of years. I want to read you a quote from this. This is he, he, one of the predominant Puritans he quotes is Thomas Goodwin. But he mentions numerous others through the course of this. But I encourage you to get this. This is what he writes. We project onto Jesus our skewed instincts about how the world works. Human, human nature dictates that the wealthier a person, the more they tend to look down on the poor. The more beautiful a person, we quietly assume that they are looking down on the ugly. And without realizing what we are doing, we also assume that the one so high and exalted has corresponding difficulty drawing near to the despicable and the unclean. Sure, Jesus comes close to us, we agree, but he holds his nose. This risen Christ, after all, is the one whom God has highly exalted, at whose name every knee will one day bow in submission. This is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose voice is like the roar of many waters, who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and whose face is like the sun shining in full strength. In other words, this is one so unspeakably brilliant that his resplendence cannot absolutely be captured with words, so ineffably magnificent that all language dies away before his splendor. This is the one whose deepest heart is, more than anything else, gentle and lowly. Goodwin is saying that this high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time with his face all contorted, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact, and instantly withdrawing. But this is why we need a Bible. 
our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. Let me say that again. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The God revealed in the scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us with one whose infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. Indeed, his perfections include his perfect gentleness. It is he, it is who he is. It is his very heart. Jesus himself said so. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, as we consider the lowliness and gentleness of a Christ who saves to the uttermost, May we similarly be struck with wonder as those people around Zechariah that day. You go into verses 65 and 66 and it says the people were so astounded that they laid up these truths in their hearts and talked about it everywhere they went. May that be us as well. May we be so astounded and struck by the wonder and beauty and mercy and grace and gentleness and lowliness of Christ. That we store those truths up in our heart, being filled to overflowing with them, and that we carry them with us wherever we go. For the glory of his name. Let us pray. Father God, you are astounding. To know the truth, Lord, of exactly what Zechariah prophecy that you have visited us. And you have not only visited, Lord, you have redeemed, you have brought alive, you have made new, you have set us at your right hand, all in Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. Though we remain frail creatures of the flesh, Daily, your grace is sufficient to keep us near. Oh Lord, we bask in the splendor of such truth. We bask in the splendor of all that you are. May we go forth, Father God, being comforted and consoled in these truths drawing near to you and knowing you evermore, knowing that there is satisfaction in nothing else and no one else, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we look to you and trust you, we can know that the path you lead us on, though the path may be stony, the path may sometimes be arduous, it is still the path of peace. And we can rest in you knowing that whatever you ordain is right. In your name we pray.